I therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility, with gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The prevailing wisdom is that when a newish preacher arrives in town, he or she should avoid topics of controversy at all costs, at least in the beginning. The hope is you don't want to burn any bridges before they've had a chance to be built in the first place. But some things, I'm afraid to say, they just can't be ignored. There are some subjects that demand our attention whether we want them to or not. I don't know if you know this, but the church is on the brink of schism. That is, we run the risk of being divided. On each side, there are lay people and clergy who just keep flinging their disappointments and their differing theologies at one another, and it really, truly seems like there's no future in which we can stay united. Now, one pastor put it this way. I have spent some of the best years of my life serving the church, in which I have grown closer to more people than I can count, but for the sake of a high and holy cause, I can let all of those friends go. Because I can no longer live for myself, nor for the present age alone, but only for God. I have prayed and I have waited, and I must either submit myself to the way things are, or leave. And I have decided to leave. Another pastor said, It's not just for the great number of Methodists across the world that we plead, not even for the millions we have yet to reach, but simply for the church herself. We wish to speak the truth in love. Treating people the way we have is simply wrong, it's cruel and unjust in all parts and principles because we have denied freedoms, we have numbed the mind, we have killed the soul. And still yet another said this, It matters not how we treat people. This is the way it has always been, and it is the way it shall always be. The matters of individual liberties belong to Caesar and not to the church. Otherwise, God would have done something about it. Have any of you heard people talk about the church like this? Or maybe you've read in a newspaper about our irreconcilable differences. There are great and powerful leaders in the church who currently are looking through the legalities of separation because it seems like we can no longer hold to a common cause. Now, lest we grow apathetic about the possibility of ecclesial schism, let me tell you, lives are at stake. Now, if you don't know what I'm referring to, you really should. So I'm, I'm going to try to just break it down briefly for a moment. There, there are two sides. Now, on one side of the church, there's a sizable portion of the church that believes in the institution of slavery. That it's a right given by God. There are scripture verses that back this up. Now, on the other side, there are people who believe that slavery and the ownership of human beings, it runs counter to the gospel made manifest in Jesus Christ. Now, we as a church are going to have a choice. Do we want to be a church that is for slavery or do we want to be a church that's against slavery? Which church shall we be? I'm, I'm so sorry. I brought the wrong sermon. I grabbed the one from 1844. I'm really sorry. 
I, I must have confused it in my files downstairs. You see, those quotes that I just read, they're real. They're real. They're not from pastors on Facebook or on Twitter who are arguing right now. They're not from denominational meetings which have the theological fistfights as this like, sort of favorite thing people love to do. No, no. Every one of those things I just read was a real quote from a pastor, a Methodist pastor in 1844. Because in 1844, the Methodist church, believe it or not, was fighting about whether or not we should stay together. And the matter at hand, the thing that divided the Methodist church from 1844 until 1939, that's almost 100 years, was slavery. I beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Now, we don't know all the details about the writing of the epistle to the Ephesians, but it's clear that the people in the church, the, the gathering, the ecclesia, they weren't getting along. Now, it's a, it's a good chance that it had something to do with Gentile Christians coming uh, to grips with the fact that now they were included in something that was meant for Jewish Christians, and they were fighting over what they had to do in order to remain a church. Or it could have been like the church in Corinth, they were arguing about community meals, who got to have food and who didn't. They started factioning behind different leaders. Or maybe, maybe they were arguing about who is and isn't compatible with Christian teaching. Now, we're not sure, but if you take a step back, I mean, it doesn't make sense. How could a community founded on radical inclusion descend into division? How could a people who are commanded to love their neighbors have such a hard time doing it? I mean, what happened that brothers and sisters in Christ had to be told by Paul, bear with each other in love? Strange, isn't it? It's like it doesn't have anything to do with the church today. We don't know. We don't know what the exact thing was that compelled Paul to write the letter, but he did. And we, Christians, have been proclaiming this word for 2,000 years, the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I beg you beg you to live with humility and gentleness, with patience, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. I mean, wow, friends, who could have imagined that Scripture, something written so long ago, would have something to say to us today? Now, here's the real rub. Paul can exhort us all he wants. He can tell us to be worthy of the gospel. He can list off in rapid-fire detail all the practical habits that can define what a church can be. But at the end of the day, none of us will ever be worthy of the gospel. None of us. We're fickle and selfish little creatures, we humans. It doesn't matter whether it's the first, first century or the 19th century or today. We are consumed by and we are addicted to dividing ourselves into who is in and who is out, and to who is right, and to who is wrong. And yet, do you know what the Methodist Church's slogan is? Open hearts, open minds, open doors. It's worthy of a goal, I think. I don't think it's where we are. Because it begs the question, is the, real, is the gospel really for everybody? Is it really for everybody? I mean, what about those real sinners? Let your minds wander. I don't care. What about those real sinners? How would we feel if they started showing up on Sunday morning? Now, we might bristle at the thought about sinners in church, but making the outsiders into insiders was Jesus' favorite cup of tea. 
And when you think about it, it's actually really, really good news. Because the gospel is the most inclusive thing around at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. That's all of us. And that's the difference that makes the difference. Consider these seven ones that Paul rattles off. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father in all who is through all and in all. We who are far off have been brought near because of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christ is the reason, the only reason that we can be one. It doesn't matter if there are warring cultures divided by heritage or tradition or moral codes or ethics. They've collided together into something new. We call it the church. Now, last week we were looking at Paul's prayer. And that prayer transforms today into a call to preserve peace. Paul literally begs us. To see, even among our myriad differences, great though they may be, they pale in the comparison to the great gulf between us and God. God is God and we are not, and yet God chooses to be for us. I mean, think about that. God, knowing full and well that you and I were a bunch of dirty, rotten scoundrels, that we regularly look out for our own interests at the expense of others, and that when push comes to shove, given the choice between life and death, we would choose to nail God to a cross. And God still chooses us. In Christ, we encounter this incomparable new reality in which we are both humbled and exalted, in which we are knocked down and we're also built up. And Paul calls that peace. Because peace, at least as it's defined by the gospel, it comes when we recognize our universal incompetence our total need for someone to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. God has claimed us. God has claimed us. Karl Barth says, unity is the consequence of belonging to God. But there is a difference between the now and the not yet. Because our sin-sick souls are stuck in this terrifying cycle of division and antipathy as Christians, we're called to look beyond in order to reframe the now. There are walls of division that divide the church, that literally threat to breaking up the, break up the body of Christ. They were there in Ephesus, they were there in 1844, and friends, they are very much still around today. And Paul, across all ages, is pleading with us to live lives worthy of the calling to which we've been called, something we can't do on our own, but doesn't mean we shouldn't try. Notably, in the strange new world of the Bible, this calling, it reminds us again and again, if there are easy steps to a better church, if there are easy steps to a better life, well, then they're bogus. Because the most challenging things in life, namely change, they require communities of people who are willing to sustain us through transformation. Faith is always a journey from one place to the next. Paul likens it to the way that a body grows. It happens in time. And remember when you were 13 how painful it could be. We can try to resist it all we want. But God's going to get what God wants. And so for Paul, it's in the knowledge of our hope that is beyond our current circumstances that we find peace. Peace is up on the mountain. 
We are not yet on the mountain, but we can look to the hills from where our help comes. My whole life, I've been so transfixed by this moment in the Gospels. It happens right before Jesus is crucified, according to the Gospel of Luke. He's been abandoned by his followers. He's been betrayed by his disciples. He's been condemned by the religious elites. He's carrying the instrument of his own death on his shoulder. He's marching to a place called the skull. And what does he say? Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. We still have no idea what we're doing. The United Methodist Church, the body of Christ, is at war with itself over who is compatible and who is not, about who can marry who and who can do what I do. But we're also on the brink of schism in our community over things like politics, education, and health care. We're at risk of having schism with our families over arguments around the Thanksgiving dinner table. It's a little terrifying how content we are at cutting off our hands and our feet because we still identify who is in and who is out on categories that make absolutely no sense in the kingdom of God. We view one another through names on bumper stickers, through ill-advised Facebook posts and late-night ramblings on Twitter. And today, God speaks to us. God grabs us by our shirts and says, Listen, I have made you beautifully different. Unity isn't the same thing as uniformity. You bring together all of your differences, and that's what makes the church so amazing. So stop acting like children for my sake. You move about with every new headline. You give into such shameful divisions. Listen, speak the truth in love. In love. I'm going to say it again. In love. Because you don't deserve to be part of my son's body. No one does. I choose you anyway. The church is not what it can be without you, and neither can the church be who God, who I am calling you to be, if you keep cutting off your arms and your legs every chance you get. At the end of the day, what we really want, now we don't like to admit this, but what we really want is to be told, I'm right, you're wrong. I'm right, you're wrong. But the gospel tells us something different. The gospel tells us we're all wrong. Every one of us. And that's why the gospel is more inclusive than anything in the world. We don't stand a chance on our own. We don't have any real accomplishments to stand on or any righteousness because none of us are righteous. No, not one. The only thing we have to stand on is the grace of God, the love of God, and the mercy of God, freely given to us by Christ. Or, in other words, we are stuck with each other because God has decided to be stuck with us. So be it. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever.